0: we pray. Father, as we think about our emotions, we realize we're talking about a significant part of who we are as human beings. And then when we begin to think about making sense of our emotions, we realize we're talking about a lifelong challenge for each of us. And so as we think about this some more this afternoon, I pray that none of us will be discouraged if we see that we have a long way to go. I pray that we will be uh, content to ask you for help and seek to uh, grow in our understanding of our emotions and how we can uh, glorify you with our emotions. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the third in our series on emotions. Previously, we've spent two times Talking about understanding our emotions. I'm just going to give a quick recap of that. So, this is the last two times in a couple of minutes. We saw first that emotions are good, meaning they're a good thing. Life would be vastly impoverished if it was emotionless. We also saw emotions are complicated. For one thing, they seldom come one at a time, very often, we have mixed emotions. And we can keep in mind the picture of streams of different colored paint all flowing into a bucket at the same time. But emotions are also complicated because they're disordered by sin. We saw third, emotions are powerful in that they propel us, they move us to action. And they often do that much more than argument or facts or logic does. And while that can be a bad thing, as we'll see later, it's also true that we cannot live the Christian life without the motivating power of emotions. Fourth, we saw that emotions are not the only thing. If we let emotions reign supreme in our lives, things will not go well. Our emotions and our minds need to work together. And for that, we used the image of a man riding an elephant. It could equally have been a woman riding an elephant. The man or the woman represents the rational thinking part of us, the part that thinks things through. And the elephant stands for our emotional instinctive side, the part of us that feels. And the point of that was that we need both working together. We need the motivating power of emotions to move us, and we need the wisdom of careful thought to make sure we go in the right direction at the right time. For example, when I began getting to know Megan, the emotional attraction came pretty quickly. I didn't have to try and engineer that. I'm talking about it for myself. I wouldn't <laughs> presume uh, to say anything about Megan. But along with that emotional attraction, I also had to think, what kind of person is this? What does she care about in life? What are her priorities? I knew that she looked great, but was she great in other ways as well? That's a lot less exciting than the emotional attraction, but it's equally important. And I also had to think about the wisest way to behave around her, expressing my emotion and my attraction in ways that were appropriate keeping certain expressions of my emotion and my attraction until we were married and we said last time that is not easy for any of us because we tend to feel fast and think slow and so it was immensely helpful that Megan also wanted to try and be wise so we were able to help each other to go carefully and think as we developed our relationship rather than letting emotions be the only thing Anyway, the picture that illustrates that is the man and the elephant. Emotions are not the only thing. And finally, last time, we said emotions are mirrors of the heart. Our emotions reveal what our heart is fixed on, what's most important to us. Emotions are expressions of our heart's desire. We get the most emotional about the things that mean the most to us. We can probably see how that works. All of that was to help us with understanding our emotions. Now today, we move on to think about engaging our emotions. Now that we know all of this about our emotions, how do we actually deal with our emotions? That's what we'll focus on today and the next time in December. So again, this will be in two parts. When it came to understanding our emotions, I tried to boil it down to five truths about emotions. But for engaging our emotions, we need guidance about what to do. So here are four recommendations. There'll be more next time, but today we have four. First of all, take the challenge seriously. I start with this because some of us may not be convinced we really need to bother engaging our emotions. Can't we just try to ignore them as best we can and get on with obeying God? Isn't that the important thing? We could call that the stiff upper lip approach, which might be less popular today than it used to be, but interestingly, a very similar approach is becoming very, very popular. You've probably heard about mindfulness. Come across that? In work or in school, you may even have been offered training in mindfulness, The idea really comes from Buddhism. And it boils down to trying to distance yourself from your emotions. To detach from them rather than engaging with them. The essence of Buddhism is non-attachment. That's the most desirable state in Buddhism. It's nirvana. So whether we've been influenced by the stiff upper lip approach or the more current mindfulness approach, Some of us might need a bit of a push to become serious about engaging our emotions rather than trying to ignore them or detach from them. So here is a push from the Bible for all of us. Jesus was once asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And this was Jesus' answer. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. And we might say, yes, but love isn't about feelings. It's about obedience And it's certainly true that love is about obedience. John chapter 14 tells us, Jesus said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So there's absolutely no doubt true love for Jesus leads to obedience. We cannot claim to love him if we don't obey him. And there's no doubt true love for our neighbor involves action. James says true love doesn't just say to your neighbor, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. True love shows itself in doing something about your neighbor's physical needs. So love will involve action. It does involve action. But Mark 12 doesn't allow us to conclude that love is nothing more than action." Yes, Jesus says we're to love God with our mind and with our strength, but he also locates love in the heart and soul. So true love for God cannot be reduced down to emotionless obedience. As Jesus presents it here and as it was first presented in the Old Testament law, love for God includes action and emotion. How can you and I love God with all our heart and soul unless our emotions are involved? And if we remember this kind of love is actually commanded, then it turns out the Christian life is not just about nurturing certain kinds of behavior. It also involves nurturing certain emotions. John Piper says, The Christian life is about the creation of new desires, not just new duties. New delights, not just new deeds. New treasures, not just new tasks. Graham Bynan agrees with that. He says, feeling rightly is part of Christian growth. And that's significant because we can easily think of our feelings as pretty low down the priority list with God. Working on our emotional life isn't a luxury or an indulgence, but part of becoming more like Jesus. Jesus, who truly did love his Father with all his mind and strength and with all his heart and soul. So just to sum up this point, God wants us to be emotionally mature with emotionally full lives. Becoming emotionally mature is not about becoming emotionally controlled. It's about becoming emotionally adept, emotionally wise, and emotionally skilled. It's about having lives that are chock full of wonder and feeling, and then having the ability and practice skill to live well and wisely in a richly emotional world. And just a comment about what can happen if we do not make the effort to engage our emotions. What can happen there is we end up trying to escape from our emotions or to dull our emotions through drugs and alcohol or through sexual sin. We can end up being unconsciously ruled by our emotions. By anger, for example. The angry person gains nothing by trying to ignore their anger. And everyone around them suffers because of their unexamined anger. So when it comes to engaging our emotions, let's first of all take the challenge seriously. And if we do, we will listen to our emotions. Now by that I do not mean we will be ruled by our emotions. I just mean we will try to become aware of them. We'll try to tune in to what's going on with our emotions. What exactly are we feeling? Winston Smith says, your emotions are always telling you something about what you are valuing, caring about, or loving. What are they telling you? They're always saying something about your relationships. What are they saying? They are always pressing you towards some kind of action. What are they energizing you to do? In other words, examining emotions entails asking questions like, why am I feeling this? What am I reacting to? Why is this hitting me so hard? Why isn't this affecting me in the way it usually does? And how is this emotion emotion making me want to behave? we don't need to start by deciding whether or not we should be feeling the way we are. That would, would be the next point. But we can't evaluate our emotions unless we make the effort, first of all, just to become aware of them. Henry Cloud says, Most of the time, a problem that involves feelings can't be fixed until the feelings are heard and understood. So, maybe this week, just force yourself to pause a couple of times in the week and ask, What am I feeling at this particular moment? And if it's a mixture of things, try and identify what's in that mixture. Or maybe in the evening, once or twice, look back on a situation from earlier in the day and ask, What was I feeling then? What were the feelings behind that thing I did or that thing I said? Then once we've done a little bit of that, we need to go on and evaluate our emotions. Once we've identified what we're feeling, we can go on to ask, what do those emotions tell me about what I love? For example, if I'm feeling frustrated, does that tell me that I love to be in control? Am I feeling that emotion of frustration because I'm not getting my way? Or if I feel hurt, does that tell me that I love my own sense of importance and I don't think I'm getting the approval I deserve to get? Now, of course, those may not be the explanations for what's going on. I may be frustrated, not because I love to be in control, but because I love a particular person and I'm watching them make a foolish choice. I may be hurt because I loved and trusted someone and they turned around and betrayed me. So the point is we want to begin to learn the skill of evaluating our emotions and letting them Tell us about our heart. Another question we can ask is What do my emotions tell me about what I believe? Emotions don't only flow from what we love, they can be a result of what we believe. Matthew Eliot says, Emotions reflect what we believe and reveal our assumptions about how the world works. So, as an example, to try and Understand that. Think of the prophet Jonah in the Bible. Jonah believed that evil people like the Ninevites did not deserve God's love. And of course, that's true. No one deserves God's love. But that's not the whole story about what Jonah believed. He believed that he and his fellow Israelites did deserve God's love because they were a cut above rotten people like the Ninevites. And so, when God delivers Jonah from drowning in the ocean, what we find is Jonah just takes it in his stride. His prayer to God shows, actually he believes he deserved to be rescued. He's such a decent servant of the Lord. Why wouldn't the Lord rescue him? But then, when God has the audacity, when he has the cheek to go and forgive the Ninevites, Jonah goes into an emotional tailspin. We're told to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. In fact, he becomes so angry, he tells God to take away his life. He wants to die, he's so upset. What was it that gave rise to those extreme emotions in Jonah? Jonah. It was Jonah's belief that God should only love good people and only Jonah and his fellow Israelites are good. When God's behavior doesn't line up with what Jonah believes, he has an emotional meltdown about it all. In the New Testament, we see the same thing with the Pharisees. They have smoke coming out their ears because Jesus spends his time with people the Pharisees do not believe are worth Jesus' time. He hangs around with tax collectors and sinners. And he doesn't seem to be impressed with the Pharisees. And in the end, they get so angry about that, they decide they just have to have Jesus killed. The belief of Jonah and the Pharisees is very common. Someone once told me about an evangelistic event She invited her brother to, her brother was not a Christian, but he came to hear the speaker who just happened to be a former drug addict, someone who had lived a terrible life. And when that lady's brother sat in the meeting, listening to the speaker, talking about how God had forgiven him and changed his life, that lady's brother got up and walked out and afterwards, he said to her, if that's the sort of person Christianity is for, then I want nothing to do with it. What he was really saying was, I believe Christianity is only for good, upstanding people like me, so the idea God could forgive somebody like that, that makes me furious, Now, you and I might not share those specific beliefs about how God's love and forgiveness should work, but we can examine our emotions to find out what we truly believe about the way the world works, and about how God should behave. So, for example, if some catastrophe comes into my life, naturally that will lead to a whole lot of emotional turmoil. But if my predominant emotion is anger at God, and if that anger persists, I might eventually want to ask myself, is this because I believe God owes me a life that is free from catastrophe? Is that what I believe deep down? That I somehow had a deal made with God, I would serve him, And he would pay me back by making things go well for me. Emotions reflect what we believe and reveal our assumptions about how the world works. So there's an obvious next question we have to ask. What does the Bible say about what I'm feeling? If we stick with the issue about our beliefs and assumptions... We need to ask, are those beliefs and assumptions based on the truth? Is my thinking right? Do I have accurate beliefs and assumptions? And to check that, we have to bring our beliefs and assumptions to Scripture. We have to measure them against Scripture and be ready to replace wrong thinking with accurate biblical thinking. We have to let Scripture mold our beliefs and assumptions and even reset them we thought a moment ago about about jonah and in jonah's case his anger would have melted away if he'd taken on board the biblical truth that the lord is free to have mercy and show compassion on whoever he wants and if jonah had taken on board the complementary truth that Jonah and the Israelites are no more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. If Jonah had seen that, it would have turned his bitter anger into thankful joy. Joy that God had rescued him from a watery death in spite of his pompous sense of entitlement. And Jonah would have had a joy in seeing other undeserving people saved. Right thinking would have transformed Jonah's emotional experience as he sat there under that leafy plant. Now, the actual situation wouldn't have changed at all. Jonah would still have been sitting outside Nineveh looking at the city, but his emotions would have been very different. Or if a catastrophe comes into my life, if I've taken on board the biblical teaching that in this world we will have trouble, that's John chapter 16, if I'd taken on board the biblical truth that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, that's Romans chapter 8, if I'd been letting those truths mold my outlook, then catastrophes in my life are not going to magically become pleasant for me. But my emotions about those catastrophes may begin to change. I may begin to experience some peace and hope in God rather than shock and anger at God. And if we go back to the earlier question, what do my emotions tell me about what I love? If we identify the things we love, we can bring them to Scripture as well. Because Scripture tells us what we are to love and what we're to hate. It tells us what is truly valuable and what's not. Now, none of this is a quick fix for our emotions. Retuning our thinking and our loves is a work for a whole lifetime for all of us. But Scripture is what we are tuning to. Our lifetime's work is to bring our mind and heart in line with Scripture. That's what will produce a godly emotional life. But it won't happen automatically to us. Graham Bynan says we need to speak truth to our hearts about what is more important or valuable or what is true or false. We can't turn our feelings on and off at will, but we can influence them. Directing our hearts as to what they love and value, and so directing our emotions. So when it comes to engaging our emotions, we need to take the challenge seriously. We need to listen to our emotions, begin to evaluate our emotions, and then finally for today, don't be bullied by your emotions. I mentioned three ways our emotions will try to bully us. Three things they will tell us as they rush over us in a situation. They will tell us, I need this. Now this might be a good thing or it might be a bad thing. Let's imagine for a moment, it's a good thing. Maybe we're involved in a wonderful godly relationship or we long to be in that kind of relationship and that's good. But our emotions will try to bully us into believing we couldn't do without that relationship. But if we go along with that, we're allowing a good thing to become a God thing. And that's idolatry. Is it possible for a wife to turn her godly husband into an idol? Yes, and vice versa. Is it possible for us to turn the good gift of a fulfilling career into an idol? Yes. And that happens when we begin to believe the good things in our lives are actually things we could not do without. David Paulison says it is right that we don't want the pains of rejection, death, poverty, and illness. And we do want the joys of friendship, life, money, and health. Jesus was no masochist. Of course, he cried out, let this cup pass from me. Who wouldn't want good health, financial comfort, a loving spouse, good kids, success on the job, kind parents, tasty food, a life without traffic jams, control over circumstances. Yet, Cravings for these things lead to every sort of evil. The things people desire are delightful as blessings received from God, but terrible as rulers. They make good goods, but bad gods. Jesus was no idolater. He entrusted himself to his Father and obeyed. Jesus did not desire Pain and death. He didn't want those things, but neither did he idolize being pain-free and staying alive. He wanted those good things, but he also knew he didn't need them. And so he didn't crave them. That's a big challenge for all of us. Because you and I quickly move from Desiring good things to making them into idols. For example, the better and the more lovely someone is, the more possibility there is for our emotions to start to revolve around that person. And when that begins to happen, our emotions will try to bully us into giving that good person or that good thing God like status in our lives, telling us we cannot do without that person or that thing but the only one who deserves god-like status in our lives is god himself as good as his gifts are and as wonderful as it is to enjoy his gifts we cannot let our emotions push us into letting our desire for those gifts rule our lives If we do, we'll be filled with anxiety or grumbling when those gifts are threatened. And we'll be filled with despair or bitterness when those gifts are taken away from us. And our craving for those gifts can lead us into sin. Sinful actions as we try to keep hold of them or as we try desperately to claw them back. And the answer to this is is not to try and stop wanting anything. The answer is to fix our desires on the one thing we truly do need. God would have us long for him more than we long for his gifts. The Christian life is a great paradox. Those who die to their cravings will receive many times as much in this age and In the age to come, eternal life. They will find new passions worth living for and dying for. If I crave happiness, I will receive misery. If I crave to be loved, I will receive rejection. If I crave significance, I will receive futility. If I crave control, I will receive chaos. If I crave reputation, I will receive Humiliation. But if I long for God and His wisdom and mercy, I will receive God and wisdom and mercy. Along the way, sooner or later, I will also receive happiness, love, meaning, order, and glory. It's hard for us to remember that because over the course of our lives, our emotions will begin to tie themselves to a whole lot of different things. Part of the battle of the Christian life is to redirect our cravings for those lesser things into a longing for God, the greatest thing. And I'm sure at each particular stage of our life, the challenge will be slightly different. And as David Paulison says, it's okay. In fact, it's part of being human that you and I want things. The problem comes when we let our emotions convince us that our wants are actually needs. If we love something that we want, it's disappointing. It's often very disappointing. But eventually we get over it and we move on because we know we have the one thing we truly need, God. But when a want becomes a need for us, it begins to determine our priorities, the decisions we make. And if we lose it, it is totally devastating for us. Catherine Haddow says, when something has become elevated to a need, You might hear expressions like, I couldn't stand it if I didn't get this promotion. Or if I didn't have her, I couldn't bear it. If our need is met emotionally, that makes us feel great. The need has become a part of our created identity, and we find ourselves being affirmed on the basis of having our need fulfilled. However, this is the downside. If the need isn't met, is threatened, or we have it but then lose it, we can hit rock bottom, since we have placed our need before God in terms of importance. It captures our heart loyalties and subtly lures us away from following Him. We worship our need instead of finding our satisfaction and purpose in God and desiring what He wants for us. And to illustrate how that can play out, Catherine Haddow gives the example of adultery. Now, no Christian ever sets out to become an adulterer. No one ever has that ambition. But adultery happens when the want of being loved turns into a need for emotional and physical affirmation from this person here to whom I am not married. Once the affection of that other person has become a need for me, then I'm well on the way to doing whatever it takes to get that person, even to the point of disobeying God and wrecking a marriage. When our emotions tell us we need something, let's remember the difference between wanting something and truly needing it. We can ultimately do without everything except God. Then more briefly, much more briefly, two other things our emotions will tell us. This is all or nothing. What I mean is we might say, this situation that I'm in is totally hopeless. Or this person I'm trying to deal with is totally against me. That's what I mean by all or nothing. Our emotions will push us to that kind of thinking. That person said this to me, and it really hurt me, so in my mind, I'm going to label that person now as an enemy. In my mind, they are now in the bad category. That's how I'm going to think about them. Or this situation I'm in is difficult, and it feels awful, And so I'm going to decide no good could possibly come from this situation. In my mind, this is now a hopeless situation. But in reality, often the people who hurt us are not truly against us. Maybe they actually like us, but they just said the wrong thing. Or they were clumsy in the way they tried to help us. And I have to say, this is a significant reality for all of us in church life. These people around you do love you. But sometimes it is not going to seem like they love you. In trying to help, there will be times when they actually cause you hurt. And when that happens... You can't let your emotions bully you into holding a grudge against that person or writing them off ever after. We have to let ourselves cool down and then go to the person with the assumption that they do love us. We have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Assume they were trying to be helpful. And hear them out if they try to tell us that. And if you need to tell them that they hurt you, then tell them. But tell them assuming they truly are sorry. And that they mean it when they say they're sorry. Isn't that what you want people to think of you? That your intentions are genuinely good, even when you get it wrong? I know someone not in this church who has a a regular pattern in their Christian relationships. I've seen it over years. What happens is they meet someone new, and they tell me how wonderful their new Christian friend is. But inevitably, as they actually get to know that new Christian friend, the person turns out to have a flaw or two. And the next thing I hear, that new friend has been put in the discard pile because they turned out to be not so wonderful after all. But of course, what happened was they just turned out to be normal. When a Christian brother or sister makes a mess, and when you get to know them well enough that their flaws become obvious, we have to reject all or nothing thinking about them. Our emotions will try to get us to be like that, but we can't write people off. And when you're in a situation that's difficult and it feels awful, don't be too quick to decide that no good could possibly come from that situation. Don't be too quick to decide it's a hopeless situation. Now, maybe in the end, you will have to get out of the situation or make a change. But the point is, Don't let your emotions bully you into doing that hastily. Are there good points about the situation? Things that have been buried under all of the emotional negatives that are screaming at you. Some people are constantly changing jobs or churches, looking for the perfect one. But every job and every church has its frustrations so make sure you consider the positives about where you are before you rush on to another situation the bible instructs us to view the world with sober judgment that's romans chapter 12 recognizing that it is a mixed bag neither totally bad nor totally good and to view ourselves and our relationships in the same way. Reject all or nothing thinking. And last of all, connected to this final point, our emotions will tell us, I need to act right now. This is Winston Smith. Say no to rash actions. Emotions tend to yank us by the collar pressuring us to act fast. In fact, this demand is communicated through our bodies. The various hormones stimulating our nervous system when we are upset are God-given ways to motivate us to action when we actually need to act. When a car is bearing down on you, emotions save you by screaming, jump out of the way. You don't need to think in that moment, you need to move. Your physiology is designed to ramp up quickly and maintain that emotional state as long as you need it for the sake of survival. But in our relationships, the immediate need is usually to slow down, not to speed up. Emotions press us to be rash because they're meant to help us survive in situations that physically threaten us. We don't have immediate control over our physiology, over what our bodies do, but we do have control over how we choose to respond. We need to learn to say no to that impulse when the situation is not physically life-threatening. Because when we are rash in those situations, it usually doesn't end up saving anything. And that can be just as true when it comes to the emotion of joy as when it comes to anger. A manic sense of feeling good can compel us to make promises we can't fulfill and purchases we can't afford. So whether it's joy or anger, One key to engaging our emotions well and a whole lot of other emotions is simply to force ourselves to slow down rather than letting our emotions push us forward. One of the most helpful pieces of advice I was given years ago is that most situations we encounter have taken years to develop. I'm thinking mainly about relationship situations. Usually, they've taken years to develop, and they're not going to be solved in a matter of minutes. Usually, nothing will be lost if we make ourselves weigh things up for a few hours or even a few days before we act. So take the challenge of engaging emotions seriously listen to your emotions, evaluate your emotions. Don't be bullied by your emotions. Next time we'll look at what happens, what emotions we can try to nurture in our lives and what emotions we can try to weed out of our lives. And we'll try to come up with a long-term plan for doing that. But at this point, are there any questions or comments? Disagreements? Disagreements?